I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Daisy thought it would be nice for us to introduce the event with two poems, not by herself, but by other people. One by myself, a short poem that's incredibly influenced by her work, and also a poet called Sylvia Legree, who we both adore and we'll talk about a little later on in the event. I'll start with my short poem, which is from a sequence I'm writing called God Complex. And it's so indebted to her thinking on the non-human and our relationships with the non-human and ecology that I actually thought I'd plagiarized at one point. And I probably just am plagiarizing her because she's better than me. (laughs) Poem after Daisy Lafarge from God Complex. Emotions are zooed into the borehole of a tree. Even as I look in on them, they are becoming extinct. I would have had your children, beneficial and tempered, marital as water boatmen link the surface. No, no, really, it's winking, this disaster horizon, walking backwards into rain with one emotional cloud, one emotional cloud and a red outline of trees. Price the trees worth that hosts a government of microbe wet nurses that supports a sequence of systems that lean on me, a man, a gut. I've plagiarized your many intimacies in that poem, I think, Daisy. And I'll read this short poem by Sylvia Legree called Shifty Weather, which I think also acts as quite a good introduction to Daisy's work. And there's an epigraph from Robert Croet. A shifty business, this writing the poem's weather. Air bubbles orbit your coffee cup, wind forever blowing the outside in, pollen, pesticide, exhaust. The weatherman, either indecisive or contemptuous, take your pick, holds out rain in the one hand and migraine in the other. Oh, blustering succotash, oh, mother of lightning. I read that briefly to Daisy before we started and we were both like, So to actually begin our event this evening, we are going to start with a reading from Daisy. This book is just published today, but it's already a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was recently shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry 2020. Introducing this book is completely inextricable from the reasons for my wanting to start a poetry book list at Granter, because her poems were one of the reasons that I wanted to start publishing poetry books at Granter. Daisy has a voice utterly and uniquely her own. This is a writing that lives on the very edge of its nerve. It is a poetry that does not compromise on its vision, its learning or its emotional capacity. And I think often about the vision of these poems and the vision of Daisy's. And I think this book will be noted for so many things. Its engagement with anthropocenic issues, as in her sequence, Dredging the Batau Lake, that escorts a reader through freakish springs, quarantines, cyborgs, goddesses, with lying at the heart of it, the springboard of the idea of the Batau Lake, 
a human-made body of chemical waste that is the result of mining rare earth minerals, the kind wedged in everybody's mobile phones. Life without air wrestles with love and intimacy and what these things demand of us, what love might remove from us and how it situates us, as in the ranging epic lyric on intimacy's abuses, the near final poem in the book, A Question for Zeno, a poem that brings me to tears every time I read it with its skinned rawness, a poem that pounds with blood and rage as those previously in love fight over the custody of emotions. It joyously engages with language and stories and also nights out and aging and lichens and Empedocles and slugs. All of life is here and the generative poetic bind that Daisy has created means the airlessness of the title and title poem of the book act retroactively to fill these poems with things. I grapple with the idea of truth in poetry and I think that Daisy's work with its complete unflinchingness is a poetry so close to truth-telling. It is like watching someone think in real time. It is philosophy condensed. I'm so happy to hand over to Daisy to hear her read this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thanks so much to everyone who's come along this evening on a very inauspicious day for many reasons. It's just really special to be able to hold this space with you. I am going to start with some shorter poems. The Daughter Channel. What's on the Daughter Channel? Old bad goose. Violet agro, incarnadine sulk. A recitation from the book of lack. Half-baked breadcrumb narratives. Toad just so in the floorboard crack. So no one knows about prehistoric pain or the sapphic sky. So what? You'll just have to let the berries be berries. Let them be eaten and shat. Stop moping by branches with glue sticks. Only fools try to put old berries back. Feed. Two men came by, possessed by opinions. A third performed feats of avian intervention and cast the opinions out of the men and into the geese that fed by the lake and into the lake that was an old idea. The demons sank into and died in the water. Each opinion a bubble, then a dark ring, then nothing was left of the men's ideas. Jennifer. Jennifer's not in. She's out looking for lichen, for the sliver with the best likeness to her father's livid skin. Mineral intimacy. Unabashedly love the minerals of you. I always was a wind-fucked girl, for the white cliffs pressed hard and lithic between the lower elements of your lips. When you flay me with bracken, its lust is pre-floriferous. I used to sit awake in the beetling dark to watch your erosion, till I stared so long that fickle hair fell deciduous round my shoulders. And when I looked away, my lashes were caught in your layers and tore clean off like the stripping of bark. 
now part of me is filed in your endless strata and the wind combs hotly my naked eyes. And this is a not so short p-value. We've been emailing about insects. It had begun with the inhabitants of our houseplants, aphids, fungus gnats. On the surface, our concerns were purely domestic, but when asked, where did they come from? It was obvious that neither of us cared about pest control. Instead, we were unhealthily curious about the insect-plant relationship. Was it destructive, we wondered, or codependent? Our stewardship of the plants made us spectators of their demise. There had to be gainers and losers. We craved the details shamelessly. I'd been writing about parasites. In the section of my ecology textbook titled Symbiotic Relationships, there were demarcated subheadings, mutualism, commensalism, parasitism. I had to keep reminding myself that parasitism was a type of symbiotic relationship, not its opposite, that symbiosis wasn't a synonym for ecological harmony. I wondered if the people who kept using the S word in exhibition blurbs and event descriptions knew what kinds of relationships they were endorsing. You'd been thinking about anglerfish. For years, the male of the species was believed to be a parasite who, born with the bare minimum of sensory organs, can only mature sexually once attached to a female. The unformed male clings to the underside of his mate and injects an enzyme into her that enables procreation. This same enzyme then dissolves the male down to his sex organ. Fertilized, the female carries around the shelled husk of the male on her body. I wondered if the female is conscious of the male's role in her conception, or does she experience herself as parthenogenic? It seemed to me that the parable of the anglerfish was concerned with resplendent hybridity. She'd been looking about for an explanation, a phylogenetic tree that could neatly classify her feelings and thoughts, fears and desires. It would be a system with an index and a glossary, a list of illustrations. That way she could easily verify what kind of relationship she was in rather than this aimless swimming through textbooks, failing to locate a phylum to anchor her mood. Someone had suggested to her that lack was an edgeless edge, constantly remade by motive forces of desire. She thought about the incompatibility of two sponges, each one trying to soak the other up. Then she tried to think of the word for a relationship where neither organism benefits, Perhaps this was so ubiquitous that it didn't need a term. She thought about the white space between the lines in her textbook, how much still lurked there, waiting to be boxed into terminology. They'd been dreaming about pepper maggots and overripe fruit. It had come up because of the zombie worm. They'd been reading about whale fall, the resting place of a whale who dies at sea 
the slow decomposition of its body on the ocean floor. The zombie worms mate inside the whale bones, then eat them. Does a whale drop dead mid-swim, they wondered. They'd read that the alternative to whalefall was washing up on a beach. Out of water, the whale's heat-conserving blubber becomes a furnace. They didn't know which was worse, zombie worms or boiling alive inside your own heat reserve. A few evenings earlier, she'd been out walking on the hill and found a dead bee in the middle of the path. She knelt down and picked it up by the papery wings, gently prodded a finger over its body. Soft, surprisingly sturdy. Did the bee drop dead in the middle of its flight? The idea of a sting drifted across her mind, which she dismissed because the act of stinging was surely what had caused the bee to die. She had believed unquestioningly since childhood that a bee's sting was its Achilles heel and conferred on the species a benignity that set them apart from wasps who stung with pagan abandon. But things didn't seem so simple anymore. Doubt ebbed through her fingers and her interaction with the bee a tentative holding which was over and underwritten by her thoughts, which, like wasps, weren't to be trusted. At home, she wrote in the back of her textbook, the mind is the body's parasite, and she resolved to dispose responsibly of her pesticides. Thank you. Such extraordinary experience to hear your poems read as ever and there's so many things that I want to talk to you about this evening I'm thinking about scientific empiricism and emotion how we balance the lyric in amongst all these things parasite love intimacy but I thought I'd maybe start by talking about the title of your collection how it frames the book as a whole and a little bit about the impetus behind this as a framing device, the springboard of Louis Pasteur's experimentations with fermentation and how that sort of coloured and implicated all of the poems in the collection and the poems individually. And I know you're going to read that sequence later, so it could be a sort of good introduction to that. Yeah, so the title comes from um, the way that Louis Pasteur described the process of fermentation when he observed it and found that it was it involved a kind of combination of yeast and anaerobic bacteria because before that it was sort of believed that the products of fermentation just kind of arose out of thin air and when we were putting the book together some of the poems go back to I think the oldest one might be from five years ago we kind of noticed this recurring theme of airlessness both in ecologically toxic contexts but also in toxic relationships and different kinds of implications between people and institutions. But within those, there's also kind of these pockets of resistance. And so when I came across this term by Pasteur, it really struck me because, I mean, for one thing, Pasteur was a huge germphobe and he was also quite an elitist. And so he kind of equated like his hatred of germs with his hatred of the masses. And so I can imagine that he was actually really displeased to find that life without air exists. And so I thought that like using his phrase there was like a kind of retort 
his, his presence, I suppose, and um, some of his attitudes, and also speaks to the, these kinds of moments of resistance. And then more conceptually, I suppose, as we were putting the poems together, I was also thinking about fermentation as being this kind of almost like an organizing principle, because at the beginning of the book, I'd say the kind of the characters and the poems and the scenes have slightly more ideals in place, perhaps. And then as the book progresses, these are kind of metabolized and worn away <laughs> so that something else is revealed by the end of it. And it is, I'm interested in how fermentation is both a kind of negative and creative process in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, I think that framing device is cl clever for so many reasons, not only because you're sort of self-reflexively critiquing a lot of the scientists' modes, but you're also using the framework to structure the collection. And as you say, so many of the poems had this kind of airlessness about them, but it was the airlessness itself that generated the work that came to be within the poems and the collection as a whole. Just sort of thinking about that merging of a scientific kind of empirical language with a more lyrical, emotional register really interests me in your work because I kind of align it with somebody who I know we both love, Maymay Bersenbruger, who mm. will often merge a, a lyrical, romantic, private and personal address with what she considers and deems to be like an objective masculine scientific mode and I wondered if that was something maybe you wanted to do or aimed to do or whether that came naturally as you were thinking through how you could self-reflexively comment on this framework of Louis Pasteur's fermentation. Maybe Bersenberg is someone I I really love I would also maybe put someone like Lisa Robertson in that kind of category that you described. I I wouldn't say it was necessarily like consciously deliberate. I think maybe it comes out of the fact that I'm not always reading poetry when I'm trying to think about making work. I, and the book kind of engages with kind of thinkers and theories from a variety of disciplines. And sometimes that involves kind of slightly determining what they're doing. And sometimes it's just like a much more kind of enthusiastic and embracing borrowing like some of the kind of like theological influences or the ones in terms of evolution and like experimental biology yeah should I talk a little bit more about those parts yeah, well I can say that kind of way of engaging with people it almost feels like true fandom because you're writing <laughs> you're sort of writing to them but you're also writing against them because you're like oh god you've got so much right but you've also got so much wrong and yeah quite easily lead me to the next question which is just how much other scientists and thinkers and writers and artists permeate this collection Brad, Emily Dickinson, Simone Weil, C.A. Conrad and I want to talk about the sort of like permeation and the influence um, and the immersion that other writers have had on this book and that's not necessarily just things you have been reading but writers who may have been close to you and helped you with these poems as well. Yeah yeah for sure I'd say it's kind of just like it's almost kind of completely made up of my fandom of other people and other writers and I think maybe what appeals what I'm appealed to from various different disciplines is some kind of sense of 
poetics, even when that poetics isn't intended. So, for example, with someone like Limargulis trying to write about symbiogenesis, which is, you know, like this amazing concept that kind of takes us away from a model of evolution that is like completely inherited and almost linear, this kind of more like horizontal, anarchic way of attaching and evolving. But in order to kind of communicate that, she has to write about it. And in the writing, it becomes a kind of poetics. And I'd say there's something also maybe in my readings of negative theology, where it's, I'm going to completely paraphrase this because I should also say that my engagement with many of these things is like completely like the love of the fan and the amateur. But in negative theology, apophasis is this kind of strange technique where it deals with the conundrum of how impossible it is to talk about God or the transcendent because you know it's kind of agreed that you you can't speak of the divine in human language but in saying that you can't speak about the divine you're giving it this word divine so it's this kind of like language that is constantly refuting itself but in the tension of the kind of the, the stating and the refuting something holds and I find that like a really viable kind of poetics for thinking about the non-human and how like you know it's always going to be biased and compromised when like humans speak about the non-human but we're kind of performing that impossibility in doing it and so I think I basically just like glean and borrow <laughs> these different kind of techniques and things that appeal to me and in terms of contemporaries yeah I mean I'm like completely indebted to and embedded within like a wider ecology of peers I suppose because I was coming from I was coming from art school so when I started to get into contemporary poetry it was just kind of you know meeting people online and quite often it was writers I met through submitting to things like yourself that would direct me to other writers that I would go on to love and work people people whose work became really important to me so yeah it's it's definitely a kind of a composite book I think that talking about somebody like Lynn Margulis actually is really interesting because she often writes about like working within science and its empirical mode and how she was surrounded by masculine thinkers who were quite averse to any kind of emotional or philosophical leanings in science and yeah. massive seismic theory on how bacteria has evolved basically mm -hmm. came up through her thinkings on in intimacy it was a sort mm -hmm. of emotional response to scientific data and yeah. I think she's a really good sort of role model for thinking about this contemporary lyric on and about non-human spaces as much as that figures in your work. I'll squeeze in one more question about poetics before we have another reading from you. And it sort of links back to the idea of Sylvia Legree and uh, harnesses in a little bit more about this conversation of sort of the non-human and the ecological. And I wanted to talk sort of about sense and clarity in, in poems in general and in your poems relating to the idea of ideas of intimacy and how you've clarified and projected an idea of inti intimacy both formally and thematically within the poems we both love Sylvia Legree so much whose poetry for those who haven't read her 
very much defies paraphrasing. It's a kind of dense linguistic mesh that mm, defies linearity and narrative structures. And the sense of the poems uh, comes through sound relationships and etymological rootings. And I hold her quite close to your work because I think that a powerful force within this book is the orality of the poems, how they sound and the sort of external sense that they generate in that sound. I think about a passage in Sylvia Legree from her pneumatic antiphonal, which goes, by house sparrows, sagittal, narrow, passage, O2, bypass. And it's got this kind of wind chime effect in how it generates a kind of representational sense through sound that doesn't exist in any kind of storied version. And it reminds me a lot of Jennifer and the sort of eye sounds that run through Jennifer. Jennifer's not in, she's out looking for lichen, for the silver with the best likeness, livid skin. And I think I'm just interested in the alternative ways in which we make sense of things in a poem. And I think these formal aspects of your work really link to ideas of how we might understand the non-human in a new way, not even necessarily on its own terms. But I think that you manage to situate ecological spaces and non-human beings outside of human perspective, while also acknowledging the inevitable human perspective that these poems must come from. And I think sense in your poem is something that's tampered with and dislodged at a syntactic level in a way that, as with Legree, feels hard to surmise. So that's more of a comment, not a question, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I'm teaching this um, this course for the poetry school at the moment, which kind of deals with like languages of science and natural history. And we did like a big Legree assignment last week and I got them to read this interview with her. And the first part of it has always really stuck with me because she describes when she kind of starts a new research project and is engaging with different source materials, like she's so often finds that she's attracted to the sounds of things and certain phrases long before she finds out what they really mean in that particular context. And I'd say that's something I really identify with as well, both in the sense that it can be something that you can just kind of um, do like a free translation with and move between associations. But also I do think that there's some way that you can run with it in the poem and then it does have this its own kind of you know, nonsense. And I suppose quite often the way that I, when I sit down to write a poem, I do feel like I'm being led by a sound sometimes rather than a sense of the sounds of certain words or the kind of, I don't know, some kind of like syn syntactical like affect that they give off. And then, you know, like six months, a year, however long later, I'll come along and suddenly there'll be this kind of like meaning there glaring me. <laughs> in the face that almost seemed to kind of presage what I, what I at that point kind of knew consciously. So no, I'm definitely interested in sounds as that kind of alternative sense making. With regard to the non-human, it's tricky. I, I suppose I could say something like, I feel like human language is, you know, just the kind of the human branch of like a wider, like multi-species biosemiotics where like every kind of you know species being has its own you know language I don't really believe in like human consciousness as like being the pinnacle of the hierarchy of evolution 
and because we are, you know, like language beings, that's what we do. So in, in the kind of in the making of sounds, even when we're just performing the kind of the difficulty of, of doing it, like, I, I, I don't know, maybe that's kind of what you're saying, but it seems to like be in dialogue with it. Yeah, no, that it, it I think, yeah, that completely makes sense and is exactly what, what I mean. There's just such a wonderful acknowledgement of thought species difference and species not being different and interspecies love and interspecies difficulty. Yeah. And also to go back to the sound sense, there are so many ways to map this book. And as you were talking, I was just thinking the the idea of making sort of logical sense through sound and that leading to a kind of like syntactic, generative, narrative or storied uh, way through the book just adds to this idea of the book for me as a kind of geological strata, like it's made up of so many different types of linguistic and thoughtful and philosophical minerals that come to generate the work as it stands. Let's have you read a few more poems. This is an example of a poem. It's a short one that I wrote it and I had no idea why I wrote it at the time. It's very much just to do with the sounds. And then, you know, about a year later, I was like, oh. <laughs> it suddenly became current. Yeah, it's called Wifedom as Triage of Pleats and Timeliness. She's down on the floor by way of a pretty phrase. It is not the day to think of how buildings get built. She can no longer be considered detached as a gable end, like a shared roof. She has implications and is implicated. And I'll read the title poem, Life Without Air, which is kind of a, a partial rewriting of the pre-Socratic philosopher Empedocles. Life Without Air. Empedocles was a woman in a sex of natural disasters. Marmorial she-throat, her of the little animals, who gathered in her side vents before she burned. At 14, she stood on the rim of the crater, but could only remember the railing. And when she inhaled clouds of perlite, felt them curdle her blood, becoming thought. Floor is lava, eyes are algae, ash is rock, trying to become air. This is how she came to believe in the oracle of necessity. She wrote of nature and purification in verse, of attic nights and table talk. She wrote that trees are the favouritism of air and that tall ones lay eggs, the olive and the medlar. She examined her embryos and called the soft parts lambkins. She told everyone her name meant belly, she saw best with smoke in her eyes. In the blood are the thoughts, and in the thoughts blended breath. Thus, when Empedocles saw Rhodophyta dreaming between her legs in the bath, it was blood on the tongue doxology. Her students had other ideas, handing in essays with OED definitions of soul and discourses on the blackness of water without having once gotten wet. 
In the feedback sessions, Empedocles endeavoured to be patient. Whenever the valves of the sea peach are plucked by the current, which is the earth sweating its flammable raiment, remember that air is just fire waiting to happen. But her students were tidily fickle, rolling their eyes like any old element. She had wanted to tell them of spume and anoxic waters, of conjuries of burnt women waxing bacterial, that for a woman to survive and keep surviving is the extremophilia, waiting for language to culture her like agar. When they came for the heretic Empedocles, she was already in her element, discoursing from ash on blood and air and the reciprocity of the nipple, exhaling with fumarolic descent, but to be in your element is to die in it. How to leave a marriage. To begin with, I watched the dentist receptionist select a four hour video of sea turtles on YouTube. It was a minor lesson in vapid pacifism for the waiting room, while lesser pain waited calmly in the sheens of the neighbouring room. I composed many emails, and emails arrived from friends like soft rain. From the city, I contemplated the tenacity of peatland and marvelled at plants endemic to bogs. Meantime, the fuchsias grew fatter, the innards of eclairs sopping over summer abundance of lipids. I couldn't go near them and cross the road with my nostrils aborted. I was done dying under banners for sensations that weren't mine. I was trying to remember the stages of putrefaction. Once an ex-friend criticised another for always writing the same poem, which wasn't meant kindly but became a kind of anointing. All this and more was coming up with the fuchsias like sweet bile. I was at the mercy of mericism and momentarily happy, walking the hills three hours a day just to ruminate, consciously or not asking the leaves how to undo a life. But the moral thus far is that the colour green can't devolve an ego back to its bare cells, no matter how viscid you feel. It's more parasitic as they said of divine love, another mother's eggs laid in you so you have to keep coming back to feed them and that's how we all get vicariously fed. Colour is what we are visited by. Ovipositing, I waggled my doubts beneath a family of magpies. Didn't count them because I feared nuclearity and more so the gauzy bloom of consciousness, mine or anyone's. Don't you ever feel like evolution overcooked? On the twelfth day, I reached the labyrinth on the side of the hill, long grassed over so you can't see your options, let alone the way. The sun was stamping symbols of bygone industry behind my eyelids. Solar hammer and anvil, solar shovel and smog. The insects were all flying west, away from the sputum they flung from. I took notes, which the insects duly amended. I had stopped worrying about analogy 
because when he said we are flies sprung from the carcass of the universe, I knew he meant it. He found a way to listen to the grasses self-seeded in the crown of his head. No shitting. I thought if I talked to him long enough, maybe I would too. Though I was wary of men and hoped I would be forever, however grassy. It's not figurative to believe that the seasons drip feed us teleology. Romance is the hole we're tripped into filling. Love is the name we gave it. I pulled many plants up by their roots, and the sap from the roots was sour. I staked my alignment with the organically bitter. I walked past the bushes panting. I mean, the bushes were panting, and the clouds went crimeless with acrimony. This is called Ghosted. Like everyone else, ghosts just want to be listened to. When I point out my ghost, someone says, oh, so-and-so flesh and blood. And I say, no, no. What appears ghostly to you may keep up appearances with others. The ghost's main problems are being so equivocal and lousy. My love is too full of good bacteria. Good in abundance is bad. Bacteria are known to target already compromised organisms. And my love is always already compromised, so it is always under attack. Lions rejected and cast out by their pride are the first to fall victim to disease and infection of the eye, of the paw, of the so-called lion's pride. Ghosting is not an action performed by ghosts, it breeds them. Colonies of after-affects clump and overburden the ghosted's resources. In ghosting, the ghost removes itself from recuperable discourse. The ghosted's ear is deafened by the ghost's reverberating absence. The ghost's absence is only a quotation of absence. Ghosting is better understood as negative presence, the sticky residue of intimacy redacted. What results from this lack of closure between presence and absence, life and death, is emotional ectoplasm. Symptoms of emotional ectoplasm include intermittent slime states and chronic abjection. If you have been living with ectoplasm and believed it was yours, reconsider. Ectoplasm forms solely in relation. If you experience ectoplasm while living alone, it is likely you are clogged with historic deposits. To accept memory as normalised haunting is to throw yourself to the ghost. Haunting is the word you give when you cannot accommodate a tragic paradox. That it happened, that it is not happening anymore, but it happens in you in psychic real time. And you go under again and again. I must speak of it as substance to make you see. Only in the realm of tragic paradox can all these arrows fly simultaneously true. Ghosting is presence in denial, cashing in on absence. The so-called tracelessness is an acutely agonising inarticulate presence. The production of ectoplasm is governed by an active passive dynamic, 
the ghost is active and the ghosted passive. The ectoplasmic deposit accrues more generally in the passive. Ghosting is the faux edit that leaves you imploring stepped to an empty room. You have ingested a siege modality. You perceive your pain as a castle assailed by ghosts, a movement from outside to in. They are not you. But the castle is a ghost castle built by ghosts, with ghost mortar and ghost stone. The metaphors mix until I can no longer tell what's vapour, what's body. The ghosts leave traces, intestinal architectures. We touch, commune, absent each other. The ghosted just want to be listened to. Too. Thank you so much. There was a part in that where fireworks were going off for me and they were going off for you and it was very climactic and I was like, oh, I wish you could hear how well they were here as well. We were going to put little eyes in yeah. between these and now I'm like, damn, should we have done the eyes? <laughs> it's the eyes, the eye emojis where they're both looking the other way. I think you maybe thought it was too cute. Okay, I'm going to note that down for the reprint, put in the emoji eyes. I think um, I remember saying, if I can't have emoji eyes, then I will have infinity symbols. You've got a correspondence there. You're like, I actually said this, if you remember. <laughs> okay, so we have some questions from people. Michael Black asks, would you say there is a poetics of science in your work or a science of poetry? Or is that nonsense? That's quite interesting. Links to what we were saying earlier. That is interesting. I would hope it's the former. Latter sounds like like it would be more for me. Like, but I suppose I would also say it depends. It depends which science. <laughs> you know, like there's not like a kind of big universal science. So, it's certain certain like branches of science, and then yeah, why not? I quite like yeah the idea of a poetics of science is. Mm -hmm. Thing, like a poetics that like pushes forwards or foregrounds scientific mm. language and like what we were talking about uh, earlier that merging of the lyric or the poetic yeah. and I think that's like part of my attraction to the pre-Socratic philosophers who are kind of these like spectral presences that go through the book and I'm sometimes writing in in dialogue too and you know they were considered scientists or like proto-scientists you know, they kind of exclusively wrote in poetry because there wasn't, you know, at that point in time, there wasn't this kind of split between science and poetry. It was just kind of, you know, well, obviously I'm going to write about atomic theory in verse because that's just what you do. And I, I think the kind of the combination of that is so kind of, I find it so generative and interesting. So I would hope it's, um, if it, yeah, if it is a kind of science of poetry, I'd hope it's like that kind of ilk. I think so. And actually you're talking about like the spectres that wander through this book. I think that's another way that we can map our way through it. I feel like there are networks of ghosts and the ghosts of ideas and figures and relationships and families that kind of make their way through the networks of the book. So it's nice to hear ghosted thinking about that. Doma, what is your favorite poem in the book? If you have one and why? If you don't have a particular favourite, what is your least favourite poem in the book? <laughs> oh, it's so tricky. I 
I feel like my favourite could kind of change on a, on a daily basis. But um, recently I've been really enjoying the opening poem to the book that is kind of printed here as untitled. And it was just this strange anagram poem I wrote a few years ago based around the word meridian. And I'd never done anything with it. But then when we came to put the collection together, it seemed like this whole kind of as if like the whole book could be contained in that one kind of weird incantatory beginning and then kind of open outwards from there but by itself it's just an anagram poem so at the moment that not favorite um or least favorite when i first got this back from the printers i was really negative about nothingness is the scene of wild activity which is a poem i wrote kind of in response to a lecture by karen barad mostly because I I think I just had to record the audiobook at that point and it's the hardest one to read out loud. <laughs> but now I've now I've warmed to it again. And it has an exclamation mark in it. I love poems with exclamation marks. Rebecca asks, do you think poetry is a particularly useful form for thinking the Anthropocene, the human non-human environmental crisis, and if so, why? Part. Thank you, Rebecca. Yes, I I absolutely do. Useful. Useful is interesting because I'm it's probably, yeah, I think it's useful for humans. <laughs> I'm not always sure about how useful it is for the non-human. But I think it probably relates to something that I was like awkwardly trying to articulate earlier around it being kind of like the hopefully like joyful, sometimes mournful overflow of of human consciousness which kind of brings us alongside consciousness of other species and I think yeah kind of poetry about like the non-human or the Anthropocene has so many different moods and affects and things that can't be kind of neatly concluded like it's really interesting to analyze like different kind of genres about climate writing and I remember hearing someone's kind of conclusion that within oh I think it was Jenny Offal actually speaking about her her novel on um, climate crisis and she noticed that when she was reading books or articles that are more in the kind of the non-fiction strands they all had this kind of obligatory note of hope at the end so they would kind of you know convey like all of the doom and how awful things are but then they would feel compelled to at the last minute but be like here's this one <laughs> tiny good thing and that seems like quite a formulaic way of having to to process what's happening and I think you know that's one of the many like capacities and potentials of poetry that it doesn't have to conform to certain formulas like that. I think about like negative capability and sort of keeps talking about how it's like okay to just not understand stuff but still explore it and I feel like that is happening so much in contemporary collections of poetry that attempt to engage with the non-human and anthropocenic themes. It's a kind of like acknowledgement of what is unknown, but what's important is this kind of this this like acceptance of a of a inevitable human voice. It's like, why don't we ask this bee if it's gonna help yeah. us think of the Anthropocene? <laughs> so you're really right to always situate it back to the human. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, completely. We have a couple more questions. One from Emma. Do you see your poetry as separate from your art or as an accomplice to it? 
like visual art or other forms of art or yeah i would i think it's visual art i think she means visual art perhaps i think i do see it i do see it differently in terms of process i was saying something similar to this in a talk on monday where i always felt quite stunted as a visual artist because I think before I went to art school, I was like a good copyist, you know, I had like a good hand-eye coordination so I could like reproduce like an image of something like relatively well, but I, I didn't have any way to kind of connect that with all of the research that I love doing and how much the research kind of seemed to kind of come alive for me. And so I, I think I wouldn't really call myself a visual artist anymore to be honest, because I think I didn't find, there were things that I enjoyed making, but with like, yeah, visual and, and, and physical things, there was like a bit of a gap between the research and then the kind of the finished piece. Whereas what I love about poetry and writing in general is just, just being able to move things around very quickly on a page. Yeah. And that sort of, le I mean, that leads into something I was, I wanted to talk about, but we probably don't have time and it's your movement between disciplines starting out practicing visual art and you're also writing a long essay or a book of essays called Love Bug and mm. your debut novel will be published next year also coming out with Granta but I think we have a, we have like two two more questions and then I think we will we'll say goodbye maybe we could finish with one more tiny poem maybe we could finish with axiology or something Darren O'Neill has a question why did you use grave accents in wind fucked and looked I noticed mm -hmm. you didn't the vowel when reading interesting to see this in a poem which also uses text speak different linguistic registers like the layers strata mentioned in the poem itself that's such a cool observation yeah yeah definitely I do really love to myself like enunciating the different pronunciations but for some reason in a reading I I don't enjoy doing it out loud I think because for me that poem is has such a kind of momentum it's like in a kind of outpouring but I feel like when I read it out loud those accents slow it down but conversely I like how they slow it down on the page <laughs> and I think it probably using the accents I, it came out of things that I was reading at the time maybe a few a few of those uses in Emily Dickinson's poetry. I think there was also quite a huge Darlet Smith influence in this poem. And I definitely did kind of envisage the lines because it has this kind of form on the page, by the way, that will help with what I'm talking about as being a kind of, yeah, the strata kind of um, building on each other. Yeah, this is, this is also a poem that um, it all kind of came out in one go and it came out with those accents. I think that might answer Anastasia's question, which was which piece just came to you, I think. Do you mean Anastasia, like which ones just kind of happen in the moment without me planning them? You're, quite a lot of your poems are like that though. You saw, you, you've talked previously about how you write them and don't tend to edit them much post. Mm putting them on the page and if it doesn't feel right to you then I think yeah I've been trying to think about this I feel like the improv like the improvisation analogy I used was a little bit 
rubbish and then earlier today I was like oh is it more like I feel like I'm using a paint that's drying quite quickly and I have to get everything in place before it dries but it's it's something something to do with that which I think is probably why I was so difficult to work with Rachel because you have such like an amazing like editorial vision and scope and um every time the book changed slightly I had to like reconfigure my whole relationship to it and where the poems were and you were so good at um guiding me through that process no you were amazing to work with and you taught me so much and I'm just like a hard hard ass I was like I'm doing this I'm putting it there <laughs> being behind this book working on it with you standing behind it collaborating with you on it has just been the honor of my life in poetry and I'm just so excited now that it's out in the world and being able to share it. And please, everybody, you can buy it from the LRB bookshop or bookshop.org, which I think is a good place that's not Amazon. And we're <laughs> doing click and collect and they have a poll with which they deliver you books in a bag, which I saw on Twitter today, which is amazing. Do you want to lead us out with a poem, even if it cuts you off, Daisy? Love. And yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for coming and for your questions. Axiology. I woke up to the grating rack of a mechanical sun. It was ticking on its side just across the street, fun of its great medieval wheels. There was weird light on our sheets from the too soon moon flung up in its place and held there in cockolded sky. I tried to wake you up, but you only curled in closer murmured something about an animal with heterochromic eyes. I went to make coffee and when I came back you were stood at the window, staring at the sun, naked as a plant picking green from your nails, like the verdigree of God, while the blind sky screeched on its broken axis and the puce moon clotted with its casserole twin. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.